This episode of the TCIA podcast is brought to you by Kopma Cranes, the most competitive knuckle boom crane for the tree care industry. Unleash your full potential with Kopma for tree care. Kopma Cranes are built for heavy duty applications with the best hydraulic technology to maximize your reach and lifting capacity like never before. Kotma's tech team, together with the unique know-how of tree care professionals, has developed the ultimate top-range cranes models for grapple saw applications. Extra functions to the tip with no diverter valves are making it ready for the grapple saw. Kotma represents the edge of mechatronic innovation thanks to superior oil flow with 5 8 inch hoses directly to the grapple. A true 100% stability at 360 degrees angle with the possibility of Kotma Remote Connectivity 4.0, a unique GPRS communication for diagnosis and remote adjustment of parameters in real time. Kotma cranes have been built since the 60s with the highest grades of steel resistance and the most reliable and advanced Italian design and engineering made to outperform an intensive use in the field. Visit cpsgroup.com for more information or contact your local Kotma dealer. Thank you to our podcast sponsor, Samson Rope. Your rigging ropes aren't just tools of the trade. They do the grunt work. They have to endure dynamic loads, abrasion, and moving through hardware while keeping you safe which is why Samson Rigging Ropes are specifically designed and engineered to meet the rigors of your job, the result of a legacy of over 140 years of innovation. Stable Braid Rigging Line is the industry standard for arborists. A durable polyester double braid rope with a high strength to weight ratio, torque-free construction with UV protection. Put Stable Braid to work for you. Stable Braid from Samson, the strongest name in rope. Visit samsonrope.com for more information. My name's Aiden O'Brien. I'm TCIA's Advocacy and Standards Manager. So that encompasses a whole lot of stuff, but basically I'm here to um, help represent our members, uh, TCIA members in Washington, D.C. and around the country, specifically with policy-related things, you know, whatever's going on in D.C. or in state legislatures, and then sort of working with our members to empower them to advocate because at the end of the day, you know, policymakers don't really want to hear from me. They want to hear from the people who are affected by the work they do. And so I work with our members to sort of connect them with those policymakers and decision makers so that their um, positions are heard and help advance their businesses that way. Yeah. And what, what you do is not to be understated. It's super important that people reach out and do all that kind of stuff because you actually just shared today um, that link from Good Morning America about uh, the the tree falling on top of a house right above where a five month old baby was was sleeping. So just for example, when something like that happens, usually what's the the government response afterwards? Because it's it depends, right? If it's um, if it's technically government property or private property, or even just standards in general can change because of an event like that. Yeah. And I think it's all about sort of taking and capitalizing on sort of the moment. I think that can be really challenging and um, sort of, we have to sort of think quick, think on our feet and be sort of nimble. And our our members know this as well, but um, you know, sometimes when we're working with OSHA or we're working with um, some agency, it really helps to have sort of a story to illustrate um, what we're talking about and have sort of a real experience. And so for what I shared, um, what Joe just mentioned, 
a tree falling on a house, that really sort of shows the importance of tree risk assessment, which I tied to my other work, which I didn't really talk about, but that's with the ANSI A300 committee. And so that's just like a really sort of um, great visualization. And um, thankfully, it was a happy ending to the story as well, but um, a great visualization of what um, the importance of those standards are. And so really just finding ways to sort of tell our story and make sure, make people care about it. Because at the end of the day, a lot of people don't necessarily know a ton about our industry, especially folks outside the industry. So finding ways to sort of show them that it is important in the work and the positions we have are important. Yeah, and that makes sense. And like you said, luckily nobody was hurt, but when you move forward with this, because I do just take this as an example, because it's the most recent one you've shared, but the tree falls on a house, you know, almost hits, hits a child sleeping in the crib. How do you guys use that? It's more than just a story, right? Like that you, it's not just like this happened and we should try to prevent it. It's more of this happened because of these things. And then how do you turn that reasoning into, into change and even inclusion to OSHA standards? Yeah, I think um, it really depends on sort of the what happened in a specific case. I think when we see a story uh, or we hear from a member that they are interacting with OSHA and they're a lot of times, um, so currently there's no standard OSHA standard for tree care. It's sort of when they are called to a job site where there's been an OSHA complaint, they look around and they, um, any enforcement action sort of is not taken with an eye specifically towards the industry, but it's a much more general sort of enforcement. And so um, that leads to a lot of problems where one of our members could be saying, no, I was actually doing this work safely. I can show you. And then OSHA might say, no, because that violates something that they do, that they have to do in the logging standard that's completely different than tree care, but to an OSHA enforcement officer who has to go to all sorts of different um, workplaces, logging and tree care might the same thing to them. So it really finding the specifics of those cases and then sort of showing that they're different and working with OSHA or working with whatever government body it is to make sure that they understand the difference. And I know that sounds abstract and there's so many of these instances. Um, it's slow work sometimes, but you know, you have to convince a lot of people. And so that's sort of what TCIA is here for is um, we represent our members. We have a lot of members and we represent them and sort of give them a collective voice where um, one company doing this, you know, you can't, you might not necessarily be able to change it, but 1700 companies, you can make a big difference. I don't know if you can say, but how many companies do we have who are involved actively with, with this process or with us with this process? Yeah. So I think it depends. I think with trying to get an OSHA standard, it sort of ebbs and flows. We've been, I, OSHA has notoriously moved really slow. And so we've been working with them a long time, but you know, when we put out requests for comments, um, say OSHA has an opportunity to comment for our members to say, oh, we support the standard. We've had really great response from lots of members. Um, and then throughout we've had um, legislative day on the Hill every two years, unfortunately it was canceled last year due to COVID, but We've had those where, you know, we have 30, 40 members show up and those, the members who show up sort of cycle through. Um, some go every single time, some come once, some come a couple times. And so it's really hard to say how many have participated over the years. That'd be really interesting to know. But I do know um, 
you know, it's not just a constant onslaught either. We have to sort of pick our spots to sort of engage with either OSHA or elected officials to ask them to move. Because I think for this work, you know, picking your spots is really important. You only have so much attention you can sort of grab. You can't really just constantly be throwing things out there and expect people to listen. So that's sort of another piece of my job is like, we have all these instances of things happening, but which ones do we think we can sort of capitalize on and like get in front of people to make a big difference? So, Yeah. And with, with all that being said, where are we now with our, with our push towards getting our, our separate standard? Yeah. So um, we've made really, really good progress in the last um, year and a half. So earlier this spring, the Biden administration released what's called the spring regulatory agenda. And typically each administration releases a spring and a fall regulatory agenda. So this was the first of the Biden administration. And in that, so the regulatory agenda is basically what each agency in the federal government expects to sort of issue rules on looking into the future. And so in that agenda, the tree care standard was listed with a target date of April 2022 for what's called the notice of proposed rulemaking, which um, is a really important step in what that is, is it's um, basically that's when OSHA is going to issue sort of their intent to, um, to have a rule. So have an actual tree care standard. The text of the standard may not be available, but it's really um, sort of, it shows the intent of the agency that they want to move forward with this. Um, and so that's like, it is a really important step because um, obviously a lot of rules don't make it that far. And obviously we haven't made it there yet, but at the same time, it's on the agenda um, for April, 2022. And so we're working really hard to make sure that OSHA um, is held to that date and that they actually do release it in next April. Obviously things can happen. OSHA's move slow sometimes. It's a they have a lot of other priorities. They just released an emergency standard for COVID. They have a couple other standards that they're working on. So we're really hopeful that we can get um, that proposed rule out. But at the same time, we have to be realistic about what else is going on with OSHA. And forgive me, this, this is no like like this is a dumb question, but is this is the farthest we've ever gotten with this kind of stuff. Yeah. So. We've been on regulatory agendas before. And so what makes this one sort of interesting is a lot of times when there's a new administration, um, the old things that agencies have been working on are sort of paused. And so the administrations can review sort of, they want to kind of look at everything and sort of pick out their priorities for what to move forward for. So we've had in the past, we had a OSHA standard. I don't think it was this close, but it was pretty close, uh, had a proposed rule. And then an administration turned over and they sort of really hit pause and made it sort of what's called a long-term um, item, which is not really where you want to be. You really want sort of a date that you can sort of point to, um, to people either in OSHA or outside and be like, OSHA saying or whoever's saying that this will be ready by this date. And so what was really great is that in this uh, case with the change administration, they kept us on there. Um, it was pushed back slightly, but that was sort of expected, um, especially with COVID too. You know, they wanted to issue an emergency standard for COVID. So it really wasn't a surprise when it was pushed back a little bit, but at the same time, it's also really nice that we are still on the agenda and still um, have some momentum within OSHA to get this done. 
Is there any specific reason that we weren't pushed back into that forever holding pattern between the administration change? Yeah, I think, well, first of all, TCIA has been really engaged with this. Um, we have worked, we've been working with OSHA for a long time, so they know us really well. And they have um, a much better understanding of the issue than when we started. So we've had meetings with OSHA career um, officials and sort of the political appointees. And so we're really engaged and our representatives are really engaged with making sure that they're thinking of us and they're working on our issues because, I mean, and they recognize like OSHA has come out and said that tree care is one of the most hazardous industries in America. And that's, we've been saying that for years and years. And um, so they know, they understand that um, their enforcement folks are out, you know, seeing what's going on in the field and seeing that there is really a need for more um, safety. And so that's something that's helped a lot. And so being able to sort of keep that momentum going, because once one of these things stops, it can be really hard to get it moving again. So <laughs> we are really hopeful we can keep it moving and excited that OSHA seems to be cooperating with that. So we're being pushed before for, for good reasons, right? It's like, because we've been working so hard on doing it, not because they're like, oh, tree care has gotten way too dangerous and we need to move the other direction. It's more of, we have acknowledged that it is dangerous and we have acknowledged that you guys have been pushing for it for so long and we're going to, we're going to run with it now. It's not because we're doing a lot of things wrong. It's because we're doing everything right. Uh, yeah, completely. Okay. I completely agree with that. And I think one thing that also really helps is that sort of the, what we're looking for, for a standard looks exactly like the ANSI Z133 standard, which is sort of the um, standard for safety within specifically within the tree care industry. And so ANSI standards, they go like those are like seen as sort of the gold standard in OSHA's eyes as far as like an industry standard. Like, so it's still, I don't know exactly, I won't, don't want to characterize it as like a level below government relation. It's kind of a different thing. But at the same time, like ANSI standards are, they're looked on well within OSHA. So having a standard that like sort of having that template already there, that helps OSHA a lot be able to like look at that Z133 standard and say, okay, we can take a lot of this and sort of make it into an OSHA standard. Yeah, that that makes sense. I'm just trying to mentally sort through all this information in my head because there's a lot going on. What does it look like, I guess, from your end when you start to work on stuff like this? Because it is so slow moving. And like mm -hmm. you said, you can only poke a person so many times it, for them to not be able to do anything. But yet you say we also hold them accountable and we, how does all of that work between our members reaching out and you doing your job? Like, you know, forgive me for not knowing the like specifics, but I, I just want to make sure that everybody listening also knows that it's a lot of work on every, everybody's side. It's not just like you sent one email and they, you know, filed it away for a year and that's all you take, you know, every year you send your annual email to OSHA. It's, it's a lot of day-to-day -day work and you serve on the various committees to, to help, to help out. So I just kind of want to expand out on what you do. Yeah, I think so. The good news is like, you can only poke one person so many times, but the federal government is really big. So there's a lot of people you can't poke. <laughs> so um, one thing that we did really recently that I think is sort of a good, hot, good, um, it really shows sort of the work TCI does is we figured out that there's a new person in the Senate, uh, Senator John Hickenlooper. He was elected in 2020. He represents Colorado. And so he is actually the chair of the subcommittee that oversees OSHA. 
And so we thought it would be a really sort of good idea to introduce him to the issue um, of the OSHA standard, sort of introduce him to the tree care industry. That's kind of where you have to start with these things. And then sort of send him a letter from um, TCIA members in his state, just in support of the standard and asking him to help us move OSHA along and make sure that we're still like a priority within that agency. And so that was really great. We got, um, we got 14 members from Colorado to sign on to this letter, which if you think about it, that's really a lot of, that's a lot of people within that dis like those are voters, those are, um, you know, potential donors, those are his constituents. So getting those uh, members in Colorado to sign on to that letter, that really helped move that along. And so that's just sort of an example of one of the things we do to help get OSHA to move. You can talk to people in OSHA, you can talk to their leadership, you can talk to them. But at the end of the day, there's other people with influence that you sort of have to figure out and think and take a step back and think like, okay, who can we talk to that can help us help move this in the right direction that you might not necessarily think of um, when you think of an OSHA standard or something like that. So we got good response from his office and we're really hopeful that they'll um, sort of help us if need be. We're hoping at some point that there's even potentially a letter from sort of the people on that sub, the senators on that subcommittee to OSHA to ask them to move it along or help us meet that date of April, 2022. So that was a really, really great response from our members too. I have to thank all of them because, you know, it's, it's one thing to like support the, say you support the um, standard and help us with the behind the scenes, but to put your name on something like advocating for safety within the industry is really great. So um, big thanks to all those members. You guys have been doing a lot recently and COVID may have slowed down some aspects, but you guys really haven't stopped, which is, which has been really good to see. Um, what are some recent efforts that you guys have, have gone through uh, in the industry just as a whole for, for advocacy and standards and all that? Yeah, I, I'll uh, move away from OSHA for a second. That's obviously the, one of the biggest issues we're tackling, but there are others. I think um, one of the interesting things we've kind of seen in the past couple of years, especially, is that sort of um, states um, and state legislators and state, you know, governors are doing a lot of what you might expect the federal government to do. Um, and so one of the things we've seen is um, there are certain states that sort of put forward things that impact our industry or other industries a lot more than, you know, a federal regulation might. And so um, a great example of this is out in California. The California Air Resources Board has been working on regulations that would basically ban the use uh, or ban the sale, sorry, ban the sale of um, gas-powered equipment, sort of gas-powered lawnmowers, gas-powered chainsaws, up in gas-powered leaf blowers, uh, mainly. Those are the ones that mainly concern our industry up to a certain size. And so um, that's something I think there's a lot, there is support in the industry for that, but at the same time, it's sort of hard to um, support a mandate that would impact a lot of our members that do use this equipment. Um, even though it doesn't ban the use of it, it's the sale of it. And so making it harder to get that equipment and not really having an alternative to like finding cheaper, like battery powered equipment, because that is the alternative. It's electric chainsaws, electric lawnmowers, but in that technology's come a long way, but oftentimes it's much more expensive than the gas powered counterparts. So TCI has been engaged on, you know, finding ways to work with that Air Resources Board to 
hopefully delay the uh, implementation date a little bit. So give sort of the technology a little more time to catch up. And, um, but at the end of the day, you know, there's only California kind of does its own thing. So you, we can do what we can and then it's finding ways. Okay. If this regulation does go into place, how, how does the industry respond what resources do our members need to make sure that um, they can still get the equipment they need, get what they need to sort of make their businesses work. Um, so that's really one area that's sort of front and center is the state issues that we're looking at and seeing kind of across the board. And California, you know, sort of sets the agenda for the rest of the country too. So this is right now confined in California, but, you know, in three years, it could be making spreading eastward as they sort of say. So, yeah. So can we just take a second to, to look at California and, so in a case like that, where we acknowledge the environmental impacts of, mm-hmm. of using gas powered anything and fossil fuels and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and also trying to acknowledge the fact that for our members and for the industry as a whole, it's a cost issue, it's, it's a repair issue, it's, it, it falls along the lines of everything else. Um, say it does get passed, what happens in California that way? Like, is there a mandate on stop using it that comes next? Is it, what, what's the process if something like that does get passed? Cause like you said, it, California sets the pace for the rest of the, the rest of the United States. Yeah, I think it's, it can be hard to say because um, you know, at this point the uh, proposal is banning the sale of it. So you can't buy it, but you can keep using it. So banning the sale of it by, Uh, I think the latest is like January of 2024. So pretty quick turnaround. Banning the use of it, maybe. I'm not really sure. I think their goal is to incentivize the use of this electric equipment. The issue with that is I think it's easy to say that, like we want to incentivize this. It's harder to come up with the actual incentives because, you know, state budgets, there's only so much money. And um, a lot of times, you know, lawmakers will say, why are we giving money to um, people to buy this equipment when we could be giving money to our schools, hospitals, et cetera. So um, it is an important issue, but that's sort of an issue we see coming. And then um, I think, I lost my train of thought. So that's an issue we see coming. (laughs) That's, that's fine. No, I'm just, I'm just more curious about how this, this process works and how we get involved and start to to work with something like that because it's it's one state and we're here in New Hampshire Mm -hmm. and they're on the opposite coast so it it seems like we're far removed from the issue so it seems like our expertise doesn't matter as the distance increases. Yeah that's a um, good point. I think um, one thing I should have highlighted is we're not going at this alone. Um, We are in a group, uh, we're working with a group of tons, I can't even say how many other trade associations, but many other associations that also have an interest in this, um, sort of an interest in even not if just opposing this regulation, but seeing some, you know, common sense reforms or amendments to this regulation just to make it a little easier for businesses to absorb this um, sort of really drastic change that in a really short amount of time. And at the end of the day, I think the one, the businesses who are using this equipment are likely not who it's sort of like collateral damage from the regulation. I think a lot of this is really aimed at homeowners, um, you know, with the mm-hmm. running the leaf flower all day, just you know, yeah. rather um, than 
targeted that you might see in our industry. So yeah, just um, typical California stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And it, even at the, like forgetting about the state level, there's also these sort of things happening at the local level, which it's not a new thing, but I think um, with sort of the federal government, you know, partisanship and all that makes it a lot harder for things to move forward quickly. Um, you're seeing sort of state and local governments stepping up to the plate and trying out these new policies that have sort of broad reaching effect, especially on businesses and sort of our industry is not any different than what other what other industries are seeing with those those um, state and local governments. Um, yeah, so we we took you down that rabbit hole of California and all that stuff. Is there any other updates that you want to that you want to give that we've been working on? Yeah, I think um, sort of one of the things I thought was sort of interesting that I've been noticing a lot more. Um, you know, our industry's always had a lot of, always a big issue is sort of finding enough qualified employees to sort of meet the needs of um, business. And so I think there's been a lot written recently, especially this year about sort of worker shortage. And it's interesting that it seems like a lot of other industries are sort of meeting the same challenges that the tree care industry has sort of always faced. And so I, that's sort of, I guess, a segue to, I think, um, one of the areas that maybe isn't the first thing you think of when you think of like tree care policy issues, but one that really does impact a lot of members is sort of CDL and FMCSA regulations. And so um, we've been following a lot of, there's sort of a lot of things happening over at that FMCSA, that agency. And one of the things that um, we actually had a really great webinar with a couple DOT employees a couple months back was about the new entry-level driver training requirements. And so um, what that is, is basically the federal government that oversees the CDL program just wants to make sure that new CDL drivers sort of have a baseline level of education and competency before they get that license. And so um, that's something it goes into effect in February of 2022. So about six months from now. And that is something that all new um, CDL drivers are going to have to do. And so what just came out actually the other day was that you can now register to become a training provider, which means um, you, you or your company is able to train these potential CDL drivers. And so that's something a lot of our members are really interested in becoming. And it's actually really nice that companies are allowed to be training providers. You don't have to be like a driver school to become a training provider. You can do it um, in-house if you want. And so we've written a lot about that. You can check out uh, TCI Magazine or our website for more information on that. But that's sort of one thing that we've been following. I think the original <laughs> law that passed that mandated FMCSA to do that was like 2010 or something. So we've been following that a really long time, but it's up and it's going to be up and running and something that a lot of members are interested in. So that's something we've uh, focused on a lot. And what does is, what is FMCSA stand for? That's the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration. So it's um, one of the sort of specific agencies under the Department of Transportation. Okay. And that's, sorry, and that's who oversees the, um, you know, the, a lot of the CDL issues that in regulations. Okay, that makes sense. So when they register to be training facilities, are they are they getting paid for doing stuff like this? Or is it what's what's the benefit of having your company register for that? Yeah, you it's I think one of the benefits is really it's a selling point to someone who doesn't have a CDL who might work for your company. 
And so you can say, oh, you can um, potentially do the training with us and we can do it in-house um, and make sure that you have sort of the baseline level of skills that you can go on and get that, you can go on and get that license. And so um, I think that's really one of the key, the key benefits. And then just sort of, it's almost like one of the benefits of TCIA accreditation. It's like you have your, you have your stuff in order. Like you can meet the comp, you can meet the like requirements laid out by the government and you can meet the sort of meet what needs to be done to sort of behind the scenes to have the ability to be a training provider. And I think that's can be really helpful. Okay. So it's basically just, if your company's already doing it, it just gives you that extra oomph when you're hiring employees or whether they're CDL qualified or not. It can be a cost thing too. I'm not an expert on that side of things by any means, but you know, there's a certain amount of, you know, time and effort and money to put into becoming a training provider. And then is that more than just sending your drivers to a a driver school that is a registered training provider? So I think that's a consideration. Um, And that's why one of the other reasons a lot of members were interested in it is like, how easy is it going to be to become a training provider? And is this something we want to do? Or do we want to keep spending a ton of money to send our potential drivers out to some other driver school? And you know, it, it's also, it can be, it's really difficult to retain uh, CDL drivers. I think every every industry that uses CDL drivers in the country right now is really struggling to find them. And so just any edge you can get to being able to either train new ones or retain ones that have that license is really, really helpful, especially these days. So, so in the six months leading up to that February 2022 date, what should companies be doing to prepare themselves or like what kind of thing needs to happen on the company end of things to make sure that they're ready for that? And I guess what are the punishments if they're not met? Yeah, I think as far as uh, becoming a training provider, it's really just deciding internally if that's something you want to do. If you want to become a training provider, what does the government need? What does FMCSA need? as far as like information from you, information about your employees, things like that. Um, And then it's really making sure that any potential CDL drivers, um, making sure that they know that there's going to be sort of, it's going to be harder to get a CDL after February of next year, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's just knowing that there's going to be more that needs to go into getting that license and that they should be prepared um, for that to happen. And making sure that any driver you hire after next February is, has gone through those sort of requirements and complies with all of that sort of the new layer that's sort of added on to that um, license. Yeah. And we've talked about your, your updates and the stuff that you want to keep updating people on. Um, Let's take another step and back out of that conversation real fast. And let's talk about your newsletter that gives actual weekly updates into most of this kind of stuff. Do you want to just kind of start from the top and give a brief overview of what the newsletter actually is for? Yeah, sure. So I've been writing a weekly newsletter for TCIA members called Rooted in Politics for the past five or six months now. It's been a while. So um, really getting up and running with that. But what I do is I sort of each week kind of pick one issue to cover um, one issue that's been relevant in the news or relevant with our members um, from something either specifically I've heard or heard from someone else that's relevant with our members to sort of dive in and write, you know, kind of a couple paragraphs on 
what that issue is and why it's important and sort of next steps on that. And then I pick out uh, throughout each week sort of relevant articles that would be pertinent to uh, tree care uh, companies, businesses, things about, you know, what's going on in DC or sort of what might be coming down the pipe in certain states, any sort of issues like that. So um, a lot of times we focus on things like CDL issues, which I just talked about is a good one, um, OSHA, um, you know, how companies are dealing with the legalization of cannabis. That's something a lot of our members talk about a lot and has a lot of tricky sort of implications, business implications. So we sort of dive into that each week and then we post usually six or eight articles that sort of dive into a diverse array of issues that directly impact the industry. So that comes out each Friday. And I think it's a really great resource for our members to sort of stay engaged with, with what's happening, both with our advocacy and then um, specific policy areas that we're watching. And um, in that there's like potential action items, like uh, we talked about that sort of letter in Colorado and the California Air Resources Board regulations out in California. So there's also opportunities to get involved with our advocacy through the newsletter as well, beyond just getting information. Yeah. And it's, it's really evolved since you started it six months ago, five months ago. I don't know. Oh, the, was... first, the first issue came out in like August of last year, and it's a lot different than almost a year later. It's a lot different now. Um, definitely for the better, I think. I think the weekly format really helps, um, you know, have the information be really relevant. I think it can be hard to write about these issues. You know, I talk a lot about things moving really slow, but a lot of times things move really fast. And so being able to stay relevant with what's happening and sort of tackle issues as they come up has been um, really helpful. And I think is a lot is has been really helpful for members to sort of stay engaged with what TCIA as an association is doing on these issues. Thank you to our podcast sponsor, Samson Rope. Your climbing ropes aren't just tools of the trade. Your life literally depends on them. Specifically designed to endure any environment you throw at them, Samson climbing lines not only meet the rigors of your job, but are engineered to keep you safe. The result of a legacy of over 140 years of innovation. Hyperclimb is a new 100% polyester 11.7 millimeter double braid climbing line engineered for both moving and stationary rope systems that run well with your hardware and Prusix. Hyperclimb's low elongation is key for long ascents and dual purpose climbing. Hyperclimb from Samson, the strongest name in rope. Visit samsonrope.com for more information. TCIA is happy to announce online testing. With TCIA online testing, you get to say bye to pesky paper testing and the process that goes with it. No more mailing, no more waiting. With online testing, you get your results instantly. You'll receive results and feedback immediately after you hit submit. Our online learning platform is widely used and the go-to platform for colleges all across the United States. With such a widely used system, you have the tools that you need to test with confidence. To learn more about online testing, visit TCIA.org or call us at 800-733-2622 to learn more.